Welcome to our next installment of the Rebels of the Heart virtual conference series, which has been an ongoing segment where we featured great leaders across all different areas of business, different companies, really showing the next generation of leadership and what leadership with a heart looks like in terms of rebels breaking the rules, creating new rules, and, and establishing what a healthy business and personal relationship can look like. I'm Derek Bunston, CEO of Life Guides, uh, and we're building a platform in which caring people to do extraordinary good by using technology to match people who have been through a life challenge of some sort, with those who are going through the same or a very similar experience now provide peer-to-peer mentorship support and guidance to help people be happier, healthier, and more productive in both their work life and home life and where those come together. Welcome to Rebels of the Heart, Glenn Kreider. It's awesome to have you here. Glad to be here. Amazing. Well, I, I'm eager to jump into the conversation. Obviously, I'm very impressed with the work that you are doing. I had a chance to meet at the Sherm Visionary Summit a couple months ago now. Hard to believe that. Yeah. And hear a bit about the work that you're doing around mental health and uh, your Stop the Stigma project. So we're going to come into that in just a moment. Um, but before we do that, I would love for you just to share a little bit about, you know, who you are and your journey into uh, being a rebel with a heart. Sure. That sounds great. Yeah. So I'm a professor at the University of Utah, the David Eccles School of Business. I teach management and leadership. Uh, on the personal side, I'm married, have three wonderful kids. Um Love hiking, being in nature, theater, baking, gardening, all those things that when we're not trying to work, but you got to do something fun and yeah, immersive. We love those things, especially uh, when we can do it together as a family. So that's, cool. that's um, kind of on the personal side. Uh, we lived out east for many years, out in Pennsylvania and Ohio, originally from Los Angeles, uh, but lived in Utah and Arizona also. So kind of all over the U.S. Yeah, that's somewhat rebellious that you've been going on that adventure. But how, would, how would you describe yourself in that lens of being a quote-unquote rebel with a heart? Yeah, I love that phrase. It's such a cool phrase. Um, let's start with the last part, the heart part. To me, that the heart component is so important about what we're doing, whether that's yeah. for a leader or a manager or someone in the workplace or just in the community or your home. Yeah. Having that sense of heart takes whatever you're doing to the next level. And it really brings the whole you yeah. into that endeavor. And that rebel component of Rebel with a Heart says, you know, don't be afraid to upset the apple cart. Don't be afraid to try things a little bit differently. Don't be afraid to do things that are counterintuitive yeah. or things that go against what people normally tell you to do with your careers yeah. and your life. Um, and maybe trust, pay, then take those two things together, Rebel with the Heart. Trust your heart enough to do that. Maybe we call it strategic rebellious stuff, right? Not reckless rebellious, but strategic rebellious stuff. Yes, I love it. That's well said. I'm gonna I'm gonna coin that and use that again. Strategic rebellious. Use it. So do it. So, so to that point, let's transition into some of the work that you're doing right now. Yeah. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with Stop the Stigma and the Grand Challenge work uh, and how this kind of has come into existence in that same kind of context. Yeah, totally. Um, this is great Rebel with the Heart stuff. So a few years ago, uh, the Huntsman family here in Utah donated $150 million to the University of Utah to establish the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. And one of the three pillars of that institute is a grand challenge to end the stigma around mental illness and substance use disorders. And so uh, 
about a year, a little over a year ago, I got involved with this initiative. And we have been in the strategic planning phase for over a year now. And we've just started with a couple of big events recently to kind of bring people in. And a grand challenge is something that is so big, so complicated that one organization or one industry or one occupation can't, you know, solve the problem. And if you think about the stigma in the United States around mental health issues, the grand challenge is let's work together, all kinds of entities. So American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association, Ad Council, all kinds of different organizations, workplaces, Society for Human Resource Management. We've got now over a hundred organizations and associations that are on board. And we're all trying to work together to stop the stigma and self-shame around mental illness. And I'm, I'm curious if you know the answer to this. Why, why was this so important? And why, why did this reach that level of focus and investment by the Huntsman family? Did they prioritize this of all the causes they can work on? Yeah. Have this. Yeah, this is something that has touched their family in terms of mental illness, mental health issues death by suicide. They have seen up close and personal the effects of mental health issues on their family. And the more that they dug into it, realized that this touches everyone, that every home in America, every workplace in America somehow is dealing with or experiencing mental health issues. And yet, as a society, we don't talk about it enough. It's still too stigmatized. And so, they want to do with this, their generation of huntsmen's what the previous generation did for cancer. Like, let's talk about cancer. Let's do research on cancer. Let's, you know, fight that battle and win it. And so they're really committed to doing that. Hence this grand challenge where yeah. we're partnering with all these organizations. So that's what I was going to ask the next question. So how, as, how is that coming into form, uh, the grand challenge and what's, what are, what kind of specific ideas or projects or progress has been made even. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. So in the spring, we did what's called a design studio. We brought about 75 leaders from across the country here to Utah in designing what the scope and scale and some of the initial strategy should be. And then in October, we had the big summit that you're a part of here in Utah as well, about a couple hundred leaders across the U.S. coming to that. And we have uh, we've had from the beginning several working groups that are targeted toward the main components of it. So, for example, we have a metrics group that will be measuring the stigma in society, but also measuring the progress of the grand challenge. We have an EDI working group to make sure that all pockets of society are included in the grand challenge, that nobody is left out. We have a financial strategies working group to help raise money for the effort. And then we also have planning groups whenever we do a summit or major initiative. We're also now rolling out in these next couple of months what we call interest groups. So interest groups are gathering people from across the country that are each focused on some particular issue. So for example, I'll be helping to lead a workplaces working group where we'll be looking at how mental health issues manifest in the workplace. So what do leaders and managers need to be doing regarding destigmatizing mental health. How we, how can we look at policies? How can we look at the language that we use as leaders? How can we look at what HR professionals are doing? So we'll have 
eventually dozens of these interest groups, some focused on context like a workplace, others will be focused on specific mental health issues or specific pockets of society. So as we roll out these working or these uh, interest groups, then this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Where we have the ground game, where we're really understanding what the problems are, and we'll be designing toolkits the managers and leaders could use, the church and faith leaders could use, uh, the youth advisors could use, schools could use, yeah. and cr- sort of cross-pollinating ideas across, across groups. Awesome. Well, you, as you know, we're huge advocates of this work, Life Guides, and personally, this is a huge focus area of what we're doing. Back to that individual contribution and your career and your, your work, how did you kind of find yourself in this role? How did you kind of become a part of this, the creation and design of this project and the, and the leadership role that you're playing. Yeah, it's a very interesting path. So uh, in my research, I've been studying stigma for over 20 years and yeah. I've been studying identity for over 20 years as a business school professor. And a little over a year ago, the president of our university reached out uh, because the folks over at Huntsman Center were looking for uh, someone who could help advise the grand challenge from a business school lens. Yeah. Uh, but then it was sort of fortuitous, so to speak, that I have this background in stigma and identity. So um, I've been able to work with these amazing people, not just at the Huntsman Institute, but across the U.S., these thought leaders and action leaders across the U.S. So a lot of it was um, serendipitous. Yeah. A lot of it was uh, being known by the right people, and then also kind of having that background in stigma and identity research, um, so that I can, you know, hopefully as we go through this, add value from that research lens. Yeah, thank you for that. And out of curiosity, how did you I mean twenty years of stigma research on identity research? That's fascinating. How did you begin your process of studying that? What was the inspiration for you to to begin that work as part of your focus in your career? Yeah, back when I was a doctoral student, and it's kind of scary to think that was over 20 years ago, actually. Um, when I was a doctoral student, when I first met with my advisor, Blake Ashforth, he and I sat down and we were looking for areas of common interest. And I was really interested in studying people that we don't normally study in business schools. You know, yeah. contract workers, contingent workers, people who are stigmatized that normally don't get our attention and yet make the world move, you know? Yeah. And he had been interested for a long time in studying dirty work jobs. So jobs that were physically or morally or socially tainted somehow. So that was a nice overlap in our interests. So that kind of kicked off what ended up being a long-term research agenda on how stigma shows up in the workplace. So whether that's a job that's stigmatized because of what you do, or whether you're a person who is stigmatized, maybe because of mental illness or a disability, you yourself are stigmatized at work. Impressive. And in terms of some of the things that you've, I would imagine you've done various projects through the research. I mean, is there certain things that you've really seen that have lent itself to this the kind of precursor research, if you will, to uh, this new initiative you're working on? Like, in terms yeah, of- yeah, definitely. Um, there's probably two sides to that. One side is how stigma comes about in the first place. Yes. We can understand that. And then the other side of it is how do we destigmatize? So, right. Let's speak to those two sides. Yeah. I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cause like, well, if we, what, what is, what even is stigma? You have to kind of understand that. Well, it's just some sort of taint or mark that gets put onto a person or a group that devalues them in some way that, you know, marks them as less than perfect or less than human. 
And so when you think about how stigma comes about, sometimes it's because we feel threatened by a person or an organization or a group because somehow they're tainted, right? They're physically tainted or morally tainted, or they hang out with the wrong crowd. In terms of mental health, we often stigmatize people because we don't understand the nature of mental health or we're scared of what someone might do. And so when we think about that stigmatizing process, we see that oftentimes mental illness is uh, over-attributed for things like violent behavior. Right? Something violent happens in the news and the reporter says, oh, is there a mental health issue? Well, the vast majority of the time there's not. There's a kind of narrative that we carry in our minds that create and then perpetuate a stigma. So then on the other half of that equation, how do we destigmatize? Well, we talk about normalization, which really is just making something normal. And I think during COVID, we saw the normalization of mental health issues come to a new level because so many were affected by anxiety and depression and loneliness that it really catapulted our national discourse around mental health in a way that we hadn't seen before. And so just being able to talk about it, to say, okay, I have experienced depression, I've experienced anxiety, I've experienced seasonal affective disorder, just be able to have that conversation with family members, with coworkers, or as a leader, to be able to say, here are mental health issues that I've experienced or that I've had in my family that normalizes the conversation and brings it out of the shadows into, okay, well, let's talk about that. How does that, how does that show up for you at work? What can we do about that to help you? So to that point, I know you, you've spoken and teach quite a bit around mindfulness, mindfulness practice at work, you know, to your point, circles and helping to sur- surface some of these topics. Can you give some specific examples of things that you're either applying in your family life or in your work life and how you've seen this kind of show up over the last couple of years in particular? As you yeah, know. totally. I'm a big fan of the mindfulness practices. A friend of mine introduced me to them about a decade ago. And then uh, I met someone who now has become a co-author and we've done some really cool work together in the space where we've interviewed leaders in organizations who practice mindfulness. And we talked to them about how they bring that mindfulness into the workplace, which I think is super cool because yeah. so often we think of mindfulness, well, you kind of do that on your own. You go, go, you go meditate or you keep it. You just define it. What is it in the sense of, yeah, exactly. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So like mindfulness, it's, mo- it's mostly about present moment awareness. Is our mind in the present moment or are we hanging on to something that happened earlier? You know, you walk out of a contentious meeting and you have that contentious sort of spirit around, around you for hours or days, or are you anxious about something that's coming down the pike, right? Oh, now I got to run to the store to get stuff for dinner for my family, or oh, what am I going to do with this coworker who's been bothering me? Mindfulness is about bringing our attention to the present moment. What's our body experiencing? What is our mind thinking? What is our heart and soul telling us to in this moment? And so the more that we can do that and bring our attention to the present moment, the better we're able to experience life and the better able we are to do things that great leaders should be doing, like listen attentively, think creatively, slowing down decision-making processes so that they're healthy rather than dysfunctional. And so we see with these mindfulness practices that leaders become more effective, their subordinates become more effective, team meetings go better, they're more creative. 
And so we want to infuse that sense of mindfulness that we can gain into the workplace and not just sort of like, yeah, I'm more mindful, lucky me, but hey, I can help our workplace be more mindful because of what I do. So how are you in that same context? How are you teaching that to leaders, to students? How are they applying that? That's a really, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Like with my MBA students, we have a day on mindfulness, specifically devoted to mindfulness. And we sprinkle it out throughout the course too. But on that day, we do like a mindfulness 101. What are we talking about? And we do some breathing exercises and some meditations to give them a sample of what that's like. And then we give them specific strategies that they can use privately and specific strategies they could use in the workplace. So like a private example would be a meditation or a body scan or a breathing exercise or keeping a journal around your thoughts, around emotions. Publicly, we talk about how even starting a meeting with one or two minutes of quiet, of just like, hey, everyone, welcome to the meeting. We've all come from different things. Maybe, you you know, two seconds ago, you were in another Zoom room and now you're here. Let's just take a couple of minutes to do some breathing, get our minds focused on the present moment. That's a simple strategy that can do. We also talk about approaching things with a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. Beginner's mind is this notion that we use in mindfulness that instead of being a know-it-all, right? You're like, oh, I've, I've run a team meeting a thousand times, or I've, I've interviewed someone for a job a thousand times. Instead of pretending that we're a know-it-all, imagine we were doing something for the first time. And say, okay, imagine I've never run a team meeting before, or imagine I've never given an employee feedback. What do I need to learn? What do I need to know? What's the, what are the parameters of the situation? And pretending that we don't know stuff actually ends up unlocking all kinds of creativity. Yeah. We have to slow down and purposefully have that beginner's mindset. Otherwise, we just go into autopilot. Okay, I know how to do everything. I'm pretty cool. I'm a good leader. I've got lots of good feedback. I'm successful. And then we don't innovate. We're not creative. We just yeah. get stuck in that rut. So beginner's mind is one of those that we teach the students. It ends up being very powerful in the way that they show up. So to that point, you just kind of inspired a thought. So when you think about deconstructing, right, to your point, the assumptions, the perspectives, the ideals that you might have around mental illness. How do we apply this to kind of what about reconstructing a way that is less stigmatized in the context of mental health and belonging, right? Yeah. So in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Great connection there. If we think about the knee-jerk reaction we often have around mm-hmm. mental health and mental illness, a lot of those knee-jerk reactions are based on stereotypes. That okay. we have, right? Oh, someone who's experiencing depression, they're not going to show up at work or they're not going to be creative, right? Or someone who deals with anxiety isn't going to be good on a team. And we plop these attributions, these stereotypes onto people with mental health issues that are usually really wrong, okay? If we approach instead, if we approach people with a mindfulness standpoint and say, oh, that's interesting that you experience depression. Well, how does that show up for you? Right. Oh, you've experienced anxiety. I've heard a lot about that. How does that show up for you? And now we're asking questions and we're in more of what we call an inquiry mode, right? Asking questions, move beyond the labels, move beyond the stereotypes and pretend we don't know everything because you know what? We don't actually know everything. So it turns out it's pretty easy to pretend we don't know everything (laughs) because it's true, right? So if we have that 
beginner's mind around people that we're interacting with, or even around our preconceptions around what mental illness means or what specific mental illnesses are. And we actively listen, we show up, and we ask genuine questions of each other. That can help to move the, past the stigma that we often come up against in the workplace or in our homes or in our communities where we hear someone has a certain mental illness. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even just talking about this out loud, I mean, when you think about illnesses, you know, generally speaking, you think of an illness, you get sick and you are able, you address your symptoms or you give some time and you can be healthy or well again. I think uh -huh. the challenge with mental illness is it has more of a perception at least of a, of a, of a static or a, or a uh, indefinite um, kind of time parameter on it, right? That uh -huh. once, once you're in it, you're in it and there's not, you know what I'm saying? And so I yeah. think that's, that's an important part, I believe, of educating about how this applies to either being transitory or managed as a true chronic situation or whatever it may be, because I think that that's part of the, the, the collective or the societal stigma around it is yeah. that once you're in it, you're in it. Right. And yeah. it's, and I think that's an important, when you think about other illnesses, you move, you move in and out of health. Yeah. When it comes to your mental health, it's a black, it's a binary situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people have that perception about mental health overall. Yeah. And it's really interesting because one of the, you know, I'm sort of a newcomer to the mental health arena, right? Like I'm not a mental health expert. I've, be I've become exposed to mental health issues these past year, helping with this grand challenge. One of the things that's really interesting to me as a newcomer in this space is how different the various mental illnesses are in terms of how they show up for people, whether it's at home or in the workplace. So for some mental illnesses, yes, once you have that diagnosis, it's sort of biological and it's about managing that your whole life. Other mental illnesses can sort of come and go, just like we would think of like flu season, right? So one example, this is the simplest example, seasonal affective disorder, literally by definition, it only happens a couple or a few months out of the year, right? So that's something that I've experienced most of my adult life. And I know when winter comes, I got to start using some strategies yeah. to overcome so that can function. But even something like anxiety and depression can ebb and flow based on the treatments that people are experiencing, right? So I think it's a great example of how when we lump everything together, right, mental illness into one big bucket, we lose so much of the fidelity yeah. of the experience. And if we're plopping on these uh, stereotypes of perceptions to everyone, right? Then we're. It's kind of like saying, "Oh, you're a Christian. I know everything about you." Right. Wait, wait a minute. There's all kinds of different ways to be a Christian, right? right. Or you say, "Oh, I like sports." Oh, well, I know everything I need to know. If you right. talk, you like sports, right? Well, is it soccer? Is it football? Is it you know? So it's one of those human tendencies to oversimplify groups. Yeah. And to treat everybody homogeneously in these groups. So this is to me one of the interesting things for me as sort of a newcomer is understanding these nuances, but then yeah. also within any diagnosis, people experience it so differently. So again, these mindful conversations, being in an inquiry mode, asking each other how it shows up for us, I think it's tremendously powerful. Excellent. This is fascinating. I'm I'm eager to learn more and track the progress over your of your initiative here. How can people, how can our listeners, our viewers, learn more about this project and how can they get involved in some way? 
Yeah. So our website right now is stopstigmatogether.org. And at that website, you can learn about the initiative overall. You can learn about the grand challenge, what we've done so far. There's some videos on there. There's information about the stigma around mental health. And over the next several months, we'll be populating even more on that website, especially as our interest groups get up and running. Uh, we will have information about each of those interest groups and how people can get involved. Excellent. And then personally, how can people reach out to you and connect with you, Glenn? The easiest way is through email. Just Google my name, or but it's basically glenn.kreiner at utah.edu. And um, I'm, I'm, again, one of the advisors for it, and I can point people to the, the right direction of where they can get more involved. Awesome. Well, Dr. Glenn Kreiner, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your contributions and your rebel heart and spirit. And thank you for sharing your, your work and your ideals with our audience. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. 